Second Samuel chapter 9. This chapter is a continuation of some of the things that David has done in his earlier days in his ministry or as king. In this case, it's more in the middle of his uh, time as king of Israel that uh, this chapter unfolds for us. It's an interesting story that uh, really began uh, several chapters ago in Second Samuel by referencing an individual whose name was Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was the grandson of King Saul, Jonathan's son. And chapter 4 of 2 Samuel introduced him to us, but only had one verse talking about the fact that he was Jonathan's son and that he was lame in his feet. Well, nothing more was said in chapter 4 until now in chapter 9. Uh, the writer of 2 Samuel devotes this whole chapter to uh, this young man, now probably in his 20s. So he was when at the age of five, he uh, uh, was uh, introduced to us in that portion that I just mentioned in chapter 4. He's now a young man, and he has a son, as we'll find out at the end of the chapter, whose name was Micah. But Mephibosheth was in hiding. And apparently, when Saul and Jonathan were found to be killed in that battle that was related to us earlier in Second uh, Samuel, the uh, nursing maid took Mephibosheth to a secret place. She ran as quickly as she could in fear of Mephibosheth being taken and killed. In that culture, in the kingdoms all around Israel, everyone apparently knew the traditions of the kings when a dynasty change took place that the new king would seek out all of the family of the previous king and put them to death. That was just the way that many of the Middle Eastern kings uh, did their uh, security measures, if you would. They didn't want a, a coup to take place, and so they eliminated all the possible heirs to the throne from the previous king. Well, that was what apparently the nurse had feared when she found out that Saul and Jonathan had been killed in battle, and so she took Mephibosheth, and as she's running, she trips and falls, and he breaks his legs, perhaps at the angle, ankles or the knees, we're not exactly told, but he became a cripple. One wasn't able then to walk uh, ever again. And so the story unfolds now, again some 20 plus years later, and David is thinking about the covenant that he had made with Jonathan way back in First Samuel. That covenant was spoken by Jonathan and David. They agreed to make sure that uh, if either one of them died, that their legacy would continue through their uh, descendants. And of course, David didn't really know that Mephibosheth was alive. The only known relative to Saul at the time that David took the throne was Ishbosheth, who was the last son of Saul, and he reigned in Israel, you remember, for two years before he was assassinated. But there was no indication to David that there were any other descendants of Saul still alive. 
But he was wondering about that. He wanted to make sure of that in his later years. Again, this is some 15 to 20 years later. And it says in verse 1 of chapter 9, Now David said, Is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? That was the covenant that he had made. He would show Jonathan the kindness that he had promised to Jonathan uh, for the descendants of Jonathan, if there were any. And it says in verse 2, There was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So when they had called him to David, the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, At your service. Yes, I am. And then the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, Well, there is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. Now when David heard that, it must have excited him tremendously. He was thinking, There is somebody left. I can do what I had promised Jonathan. What an exciting time this must have been for David as he's discovering now that there's still somebody alive and, and it is indeed a son, a direct descendant of his friend Jonathan. Now this story is a very, very impressive story, but it's also a very wonderful, powerful picture of Jesus as our king with Mephibosheth as a representative of you and I as those that the king seeks after. And so keep that in mind as we continue moving through this and we'll explain some of that as we go along. But he says in verse 4, So the king said to him, Well, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, in Lodabar. Now, Lodabar was a small community, a very barren area uh, east of the Jordan River. In fact, the words Lodabar in Hebrew means no pasture. It's a very barren area, but there was a town there, and that's where this man Macher was residing. He is going to be uh, introduced to us here, but will be mentioned much later on in Second Samuel and in the Chronicles, First Chronicles, where he assists David much later in David's uh, kingly reign. But here he's introduced to us as the son of Amiel, and he lives in Lodabar, and he's taking care of this man Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth apparently, because of his infirmity, he isn't able to do much of anything on his own, so he's dependent on others uh, for his upkeep. Well, verse 5 continues and says, Then King David sent and brought him out of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. And now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. And then David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Here is your servant. So David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show you the kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, and will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. Now this apparently is not what Mephibosheth was thinking was going to take place. Take note of the fact that David has to assure him in verse 7. He says to him, do not fear. So as Mephibosheth is bowing before David, David apparently senses a sense of uh, very, very 
cautious optimism, if you will, in, on Mephibosheth's part. He doesn't know why David called him, but the only thing that perhaps he could think of might have been that he was going to kill this young man. Because after all, that's what kings in that region did to the previous king's descendants. So it would have been something that perhaps he would have expected. But in any case, he did express a certain amount of fear as he bowed his face before the king. And he refers to himself as your servant. He's later going to say he is a dead dog. Uh, really self-proclaiming his undeservedness of what David is going to be bestowing upon him. And that is why we look at Mephibosheth as a type of, a picture of you and I, the church, because we are all very undeserving of the favor of the king. And the king wants to bless, even though we might not have originally believed that that was the case when we were before Christ. You know, none of us perhaps thought of the uh, possibility that the Lord would want to bless us. In fact, some people come to the Lord in fear and trembling, and that's a good thing. Uh, some people come because they know of his love. That's a wonderful thing as well. But Mephibosheth didn't have that confidence that he was coming before the king to receive the king's favor. But David again reassures him, as he said in verse 7, I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. What a blessing that is, to be able to have the promise that David the king has made to this young man a servant. Although he's a descendant of the former king, he is just a servant nonetheless. And he says in verse 8, Then he bowed himself and said, What is your servant that you should look upon such a dog as I? So David has expressed a great deal of grace in this. He has compassion on this young man. He has pity on him, knowing that he is infirmed and seeing that he is laying himself before David and referring to himself as a servant or as a dead dog. David realizes this man has no aspirations to the throne. And he is very much wanting to bless this young man because it's the covenant that he had made with Jonathan. Now, our Lord Jesus has made a covenant on behalf of us, his people, and he wants to perform that covenant arrangement for those who would receive it. So Mephibosheth is, like us, the recipient of grace, and he is receiving the benefits of the uh, fact that he is entering into a relationship with this king that he did not have before. And it's a blessing to him as it is to us. There's such abundant grace being demonstrated here. And again, that abundant grace that Jesus has bestowed upon us. This is just a small example of the kind of outpouring of great love and affection and desire to be with his people that Jesus has put together in this story so that we can kind of relate to the fact that we have a king who loves us, who has poured out his grace upon us, who has shown compassion to us and has given us such abundant life that we were so undeserving of. What a remarkable story this is. Verse 9 says, And the king 
called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul and to all his house. You, therefore, and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him, and you shall bring in the harvest that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall always eat bread at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. So there's a fairly large group of men that he could depend on to care for the property that Mephibosheth is now being granted. When Saul died and Jonathan died and Ishbosheth uh, no longer was reigning in Israel, that property became the property of the king. And it's very likely that David now, since he is a king, he has the authority certainly to bequest that property back to whomever he chooses. And he has chosen Mephibosheth for that. But instead of Mephibosheth having to deal with the labor involved and and the hiring of all the personnel that would be required to take care of that land, to farm it, to uh, harvest the crops, and to distribute the wealth among uh, Mephibosheth's family members, that is given the responsibility of this man, Ziba. Now, Ziba also, like Mecker, will be introduced to us at a later time in the stories of David's life later on in Second Samuel and in First Chronicles. And he proves to be less of a credible individual than what we would expect. But we'll see that as we get further on into our studies sometime down the road, if the Lord tarries and if he wills that we can do so. But now, in this part of the story, Ziba is given this great responsibility, and he has a large clan, 15 sons of his own, plus 20 servants that will be able to help him to do that work. So he's pretty well set for life as well. God protects, God provides, and even though uh, this man, Ziba, is given blessings, we find out again that he's going to turn against the king. And unfortunately, there are some who have been given great blessings by the Lord, who have tried Jesus for a while and then turned away in the end. And they never really were, I believe, truly born again. Now, that doesn't mean that um, people who come to Jesus um, are potentially not saved if they've confessed Jesus as their Lord and Savior. That's not the case. Paul tells us very clearly, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And so there's no question that there is salvation to those who confess and believe. And that confession with the mouth and believing with the heart results in obedience in faith throughout our days. Now, I don't believe anyone who is truly born again would ever want to turn from that kind of great blessing that is bestowed upon those who believe. But I do believe it is possible. There is a sin unto death. I don't think that it is something that you should ever, ever take lightly that you have been given such grace as you have. But when the Word of God tells us that we are to work out our own salvation in fear and trembling, we need to be reminded of the fact that it is God who worketh in us. 
his perfect will. So there's work that needs to be done as believers. That's part of what we know of as our obedience that is required of us. But our obedience is required not for the earning of our salvation, but for the gaining of rewards. And the good works that we do are proof of our having been saved. They don't give us salvation through the doing of the works. That's very clear in the Word of God. I hope that's clear to us all here. But Ziba then said to the king in verse 11, According to all that my lord the king has commanded his servant, so will your servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons, adopted into the family. What a great picture it is again of salvation of souls. Feasting at his table. That's what we have in store for us, my friends. A feasting time daily at the feast of the king. What a great blessing that is for Mephibosheth. What a great blessing it is for you and I. Verse 12 continues and says these last words about Mephibosheth. He had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table, and he was lame in both of his feet. So he had a place in Jerusalem so that it was nearby the king's house where he could go to the king's table on a daily basis and his property in Gibeah where Ziba would be taking care of all of those things that needed to be taken care of. He probably was hardly ever, ever there. But he is spoken of here as residing now in Jerusalem. We don't know his wife's name, assuming that she's with him, there's only one child mentioned. We don't know if he had other children, but we do know that he had great blessing with David on a daily basis. What a great honor it was for this young man to be a part of what David's doing in this reign of the king. Well, chapter 10 continues with a remarkable story with regard to David's generosity David's compassion and David's willingness to show his condolences to even outsiders. It tells us in verse 1, it happened after this that the king of the people of Ammon died and Hanan, his son, reigned in his place. Then David said, I will show kindness to Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent by the hand of his servants to comfort him concerning his father. And David's servant came into the land of the people of Ammon. Now Ammon is what is now present-day Jordan. As a matter of fact, the capital of Jordan is Ammon, Jordan. And that name Ammon is taken from the descendants of Ammon, who lived in that territory many, many years before even Jordan became into, came into existence. But this king, Nahash, apparently had done David good favors somewhere along the line, either before he became king when he was trying to run from Saul, or perhaps earlier on in his reign, uh, helping uh, David establish himself as king, kind of like with what Hiram did 
the king of Tyre, in helping David to build his house. We're not told what exactly it was that Nahash had done for David, but David respected this king of Ammon, and when he died, David had heard about it, and he wanted to express condolences to his family, especially to his son, who was now on the throne of Ammon, and David wanted to extend his hand of peace to this young man, and unfortunately, this young ruler had some counselors that were very much like the counselors that were part of the kingdom of Israel after Solomon's death. And I only want to make mention of it here because it really is a very similar situation. When Solomon died, his son Rehoboam took the throne and the people came to Rehoboam and asked Rehoboam to please relieve them of the great tax burden that Solomon had been placing on them. And so so Samuel's son Rehoboam decided to ask his counselors, what do you think I should do? And they all being young men, and very, very unwise at that, told Rehoboam, make it more and more difficult for this people so that they won't ever come to you to ask of favors again. Make it so that they'll understand that they thought Solomon was bad, you'll be many, many times worse than than he was. Well, you all know that when Rehoboam took that unwise counsel, that the northern ten tribes split from Judah and Benjamin, and the divided kingdom became a reality. Unfortunately, the king listened to unwise counselors. And that is exactly what is going to be taking place here in the land of Ammon. It says in verse 3, And the princes of the people of Ammon said to Hanan, their lord, Do you think that David really honors your father because he has sent comforters to you? Has David not rather sent his servants to you to search the city, to spy it out, and to overthrow it? So they convinced him that David had ulterior motives. That was the furthest thing from the truth. David was wanting to befriend this young man, but instead his counselors have turned him against David. Very, very bad decision on his part to listen to those counselors. So it says in verse 4, Therefore, Hanan took David's servants that David had sent to express his condolences. He shaved off their beards, cut off their garments in the middle at their buttocks, and sent them away. Now, not only did he shave off their beards, they didn't shave the whole beard. They only shaved half of the beard. One half of the face, no beard. The other half of the face, fully bearded. That was in itself a very disgraceful thing for these men of Israel. The Israeli people always wore beards with very, very few exceptions. And that wasn't really the problem. If they had fully shaven them, they probably wouldn't have been nearly as troubled as if what they did do by shaving only half of their face, they looked very, very odd. And they were very, very embarrassed. And if that wasn't enough, the king also had their garments, which were robes, cut at the waist. So their buttocks, their loins showed. That was a disgrace beyond 
measure. They were so terribly ashamed and they were sent away with such evil things done to them. It says in verse 6, or 5 rather, when they told David, he sent to meet them because the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, wait at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. Jericho was just next to the Jordan River. They would find a place there where they could stay and until their beards grew back, then they could enter back into Jerusalem after however many days or weeks that it might take for them to grow their beards back to a length that would be respectable for them. So David went to them and he showed compassion to them. He pitied them for having received such a terrible disgrace on their part from the king of Ammon. But I'm not really sure that David was prepared to do anything more than that at this juncture. I'm sure that David must have thought, what am I going to do to get even? But he also knows that vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. So perhaps David wasn't going to act on this terrible situation, not at this stage. We're not really told. But the following verses tell us that David was needing to take action because those men from Ammon, having done what they did, began to realize that it was likely they didn't really know David well, but if he was like any of the other kings, this is how David should likely respond. In verse 7, or verse 6 rather, it says, When the people of Ammon saw that they had made themselves repulsive to David, the people of Ammon sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and from the king of Maacah, 1,000 men, and from Ishtab, 12,000 men. Now, Syria is also known as the Aramean race of people. So you probably have the Arameans there in your text if you have the New American Standard or the uh, uh, the NIV or some of the other translations. But it is what we know as present-day Syria today. Damascus is their capital. And that day, Syria extended down into what is now northern Jordan, into that area just east of the Galilee region. And these men are all Syrians or are Arameans, and they are hired by Ammon as mercenaries. In verse 7 it says, Now when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the army of the mighty men. And then the people of Ammon came out and put themselves in battle array at the entrance of the gate of the city. And the Syrians of Zobah, Beth Rehob, Ishtab, and Maacah were by themselves in the field. So Joab is sent by David because he has heard that they are amassing an army, hiring mercenaries, and preparing to perhaps attack Israel. So David sends his army out to circumvent that invasion. And when Joab, Joab, verse 9 says, when Joab saw that the battle line was against him before and behind, in other words, he was surrounded, he chose some of Israel's best and put them in battle array against the Syrians, the mercenaries. Why would he do that? 
Well, it's probably very likely that they numbered a great large number of men. However, David's mighty men were fierce fighters. They were known to be very fierce fighters. They had won many, many battles over many of the areas around. They were already recognized as a force to be contended with. Now, these men were mercenaries. They weren't really fighting for their own country, for their own land. They were fighting for pay. They likely were already paid. And so when Joab begins to rush his mighty men towards that group of Syrian mercenaries, they just kicked and ran. They didn't want to fight. If it had been a lesser group of men, they might have stayed to fight. But they realized they would be simply overpowered very easily by Joab's mighty men. So they ran. It tells us that in verse 9, after they had put him into that place where he was needing to make a decision of how to arrange for this battle. Again, I repeat, when Joab saw that the battle line was against him before and behind, he chose some of Israel's best and put them in battle array against the Syrians. And the rest, in verse 10, of the people he put under the command of his brother Abishai, that he might set them in battle array against the people of Ammon. And then he said, If the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the people of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. So that's his battle plan. They are going to work together as a team and fight in opposite directions unless either one of them are overwhelmed and then the other will come to their help. And then he says in verse 12, and this is a very interesting statement of Joab. Listen carefully. Be of good cheer, he said. Be of good courage and let us be strong for our people for our cities, the cities of our God, and may the Lord God do what is good in his sight. So Joab is calling on Jehovah God. This is the only time that we see a record given of Joab referring to God as he prepares for battle. It seems like a very noble thing, a very good statement that he is making. But remember, Joab proved to be a man who is not a man of integrity at all. He has already shown himself to be a very uh, evil man with regard to the way that he treated Abner. David has allowed him to be his general only because Joab was the one who managed to take the city of Jerusalem. And so now he's again in charge. But here he does show some degree of character with respect to some sort of faith in God. However, it's not really given anywhere else but here. So it's hard to say where Joab really is with regard to his uh, love of the Lord, but his respect for God is at least shown here in this way. Verse 13 says, So Joab and the people who were with him drew near for the battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the people of Ammon saw that the Syrians were fleeing, they also fled before Abishai and entered the city. It was a gated city. It's the city that is of Rabbah in that territory of Ammon, which we are going to read about in the next chapter. But here, the um, Ammonites 
are afraid also when the Syrians leave, they back away also and they escape back into the gated city and then they are protected from the onslaught of the armies of Israel. And now that that has taken place, when the people of Ammon, it tells us in verse 14, saw that the Syrians were fleeing, they also fled before Abishai and entered the city. So Joab returned from the people of Ammon and went to Jerusalem. He didn't want to stay and besiege the city, probably didn't have the equipment to do that, and since there was no open field in which to have a battle, he just let them go back into the city, and he took his army and went back. Nobody was killed in this face-off. The Syrians left, the Ammonites left the battlefield before they were engaged in battle. However, as a result of this event, it tells us that in verse 16, when Hadadezer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the river, they came to Helam and Shobak, the commander of Hadadezer's army, went before them. The Syrian army now is coming back and they want vengeance. They, I had said, perhaps were already paid, but maybe they weren't paid. But in any case, the Syrians are outraged that there was no defeat of the Israeli army. And they now are taken upon themselves to come down and threaten Israel with a large army. And their great leader, whose name is given as Shobak, the commander of Hadadezer's army, went before them. Verse 17 says, And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel, crossed over the Jordan, and came to Helam. And the Syrians set themselves in battle array against David and fought with him. Now this battle is one of the most outstanding victories that David will have in all of the record that we have. It is probably the pinnacle of David's military career. He is getting middle-aged. He's getting probably close to 50 years old. But he's in the battlefield, and he is leading his men, and uh, he is having a great victory here, as we will see. Verse 18 says, Then the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed 700 charioteers and 40,000 horsemen of the Syrians, and struck Shobak, the commander of their army, who died there. So this is a great military victory for David and his men. And lastly, in verse 19, it says, And when all the kings who were servants of Hadadezer saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and served them. And so the Syrians were afraid to help the people of Ammon anymore. There was no more of this mercenary stuff between those people groups. So these two chapters, again, David has wanted to demonstrate compassion, grace, favor upon Mephibosheth, upon the Ammonites. And in one case, it is received with great joy and great uh, amazement, uh, overwhelmed that David would be so kind as he was. Mephibosheth bows to him and considers himself so undeserving of such grace and mercy and yet receives it gladly and represents the church. The Ammonites, on the other hand, could have been recipients of the grace that was being offered, but they're representatives of the world and they do not receive that grace, that gift, 
Instead, they reject it. And the punishment is that rejection puts them into a place of servanthood in the kingdom of David's reign. So that's the message that I think the Lord is giving to us here. We have in this present day people all around us, some who are like Mephibosheth, willing to receive the blessing, others who are like the Ammonites, who are not. And we can't tell who they are, but the offer is always being made by the king to receive the gift. It's just a matter of will they receive it or will they not? The choice is always given. Two options. Nevermore, only two. Either you do or you don't. I've often said, and I was talking to Sandy just a while ago about this very thing, that God is never, ever going to give you more than a black or white option. It either is this way or it is that way. There's no gray. There's no in-between. There's no middle ground. God makes us to choose one or the other. And that's all that we have. We chose, who believe in Christ, the right thing. We need to pray for people everywhere around us, family, relatives, neighbors, employees. Neighbors are so many of them far from God. And in these last days, isn't it a good idea for them to hear the word from the lips of those who know truth? My prayer is that we would be faithful in these last hours, that we wouldn't neglect the command of God to be witnesses in both our speaking and in our doing. The way we live speaks volumes. We want to be light. We want to give them this simple truth so that they too can make the right choices. And hopefully many will. If you look around, this world is falling apart. And I'm concerned about what's going to be taking place in our country, I believe, very soon. Because of all of the things that are being allowed in this nation, I believe we are ripe for judgment. I know you know these things to be so. You look around and you see all of the terrible decisions that men and women are making with regard to gender, with regard to same-sex marriage, with regard to abortion, with regard to all the civil liberties that people want and try to establish social uh, justice, which is so far from biblical justice, and all the various things that are woke in this region of our world, all of those things that are being accepted by the masses. It's a terrible time. And there's many, many people, I believe, who are beginning to question, why is all this happening? And that's why I believe there's going to be, I'm hoping and praying for a great renewal and a move of the Holy Spirit of God to convict these souls, to draw them to himself in these last days. And I want us as children of God to be lights. I want Safe Harbor Church to be a light unto the Gentiles around us, the 
or the Jews, all who are unbelievers, whatever their lifestyle may have been, they can find favor and grace and mercy in the arms of Jesus. Oh, if they would only turn. That's my prayer for them. I know that the time of the Gentiles has not yet been fulfilled because the church is still here. There is coming a time when God is going to say, that's it, the house is full. I want the house to be full through the work of this house that he has established here in Searsport, Maine, as well as all the other faithful church ministries where the word of God is taught. So that's the things that we need to be mindful of in these last days. And I pray that you and I, all of us, would be instruments of righteousness in God's hands to give them the ability to make the right choice for Christ. Amen. Grace and peace.